We're going to turn now to his word, to the gospel according to Mark, as we begin a new series this morning, uh, an eight-part series covering the whole of Mark, which you may think sounds rather swift and dramatic, a bit like Mark's gospel itself. That's uh, roundabout right. But we're going to look at key verses in Mark's gospel uh, between now and the beginning of December. That's, uh, God willing, is our, is our plan. So Mark chapter 2 and the first 17 verses, page 1009. Let's hear and read together the word of God. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything. Like this. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd were coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, a doctor, 
But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. As we start to look at Mark's gospel, let me issue you with a a suggestion, an invitation. If you are not sure which part of the Bible to read in your own regular devotions, then may I suggest you start reading through Mark's gospel nice and slowly over the next few weeks. Then you will see just where we are going as a church uh, during these autumn months. We're going to be going through Mark, as I say, uh, for much of the rest of the year. What are we doing in looking at Mark? Well, we're not looking at Mark. We're looking at the one that Mark is looking at. We're looking at the Lord Jesus Christ on whom the spotlight falls in every place in Mark's gospel. I like to think of Mark's gospel as being a bit like an aeroplane that doesn't bother taxiing around the runway before taking off. You know what I mean? If you go on an aeroplane, you get on board, you board the plane, and you for 10 minutes, you're going round these various little interconnecting runways, and you're thinking, when are we going to take off? When are we going to take off? And you're not quite there yet. Then eventually you get to the end of the runway, and then, whoom, and you're off, and you're up, and you're, uh, you're in the sky. Now, Mark doesn't take any time to take off. He's right up there very, very quickly indeed. Now, what, what do I mean by that? Well, we see in this chapter, chapter 2, that Jesus is straight away in the thick of controversy. He's already in chapter 1 been uh, healing and preaching and teaching and traveling and doing all sorts of things. And even now in chapter 2, he is caught in the thick of controversial argument. He's just called a tax collector by the name of Levi, also called Matthew, to follow him. And then here in verse 15, what do we see? We see that many sinners and tax collectors are sitting and eating with Jesus. And this arouses the anger of the scribes and the Pharisees, of the religious establishment of the day, of those people who seemed to be the most holy and righteous of all. And they ask this question, why does this man, Jesus, eat with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus gives the answer we're going to think about this morning. Those who are well have no need of a doctor, a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call righteous, but sinners. That's what Jesus says. And the first thing I want us to see this morning is a very simple, profound point. We need to know that we are sick. You and I need to know that we are sick. I want you to imagine two scenarios, both of them in a doctor's surgery. Here is a patient 
sitting with a doctor. And the doctor says to the patient, well, good morning, good afternoon. Um, what's the problem? Why are you here? And the patient says, um, oh, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. In fact, I'm feeling 100%, never better. Top of the morning. If he's in Ireland, he might say that. I'm feeling really well. I'm in, I'm in rude health, as they used to say. I'm feeling wonderful. What does the doctor say? There's the door, sir, madam. You're wasting my time. You don't need to see me. Be on your way. I've got sick patients I need to see. Okay? That's the first scenario. Second scenario. A few weeks later, the same patient goes to see the doctor, the same doctor, for a routine checkup. And the doctor examines the patient very carefully, takes his blood pressure, listens to his breathing, listens to his heart rate, checks his pulse, looks in his eyes, in his throat, in his ears, wherever he looks, sits him down, draws a deep breath, and says, I have to tell you that you are actually very, very ill. You are very seriously ill indeed. And he describes the condition very carefully. And he says, if left untreated, you only have a few months left to live. But if, and only if, you as a patient undergo some emergency surgery in the next 24 hours and then take this particular course of treatment, you will make a full recovery. Right? Now you imagine that you are that patient. How do you feel when the doctor tells you how sick you are? You feel shocked. You feel horrified. You feel frightened. You feel worried, you're shaken, you're overcome, you probably are, are in tears or something like that. There's an emotional reaction of, of dismay and horror. You weren't expecting this. But after a while, another emotion takes the place of that shock. You begin to feel grateful and glad that the doctor has told you the truth. You trust the doctor's skill and knowledge and training and experience. You believe what the doctor has told you. It's better for you to find out, isn't it? So you can undergo the treatment and make a full recovery than never to know. Would that be the case? Let me say this to you this morning, every one of you here. The Christian message begins with bad news. It tells you and tells me that we are indeed sick and terminally ill. And none of us here enjoy hearing bad news, do we? We hate bad news. We love good news. We would rather hear good news. And a bit later, we will hear good news. But again, none of us wants bad news to be kept from us if that bad news is true and important to us. 
we feel like saying to the doctor, there's bad news. Then tell me how bad it is. Don't hide anything from me. A bit like Eli saying to Samuel when Samuel had been spoken to by the Lord, tell me everything, my son. Hide nothing from me. Tell me the whole message. If the patient doesn't want to hear the bad news or doesn't believe the bad news, then the patient is acting like a fool. And if the doctor does not tell the patient the bad news, just how sick the patient is, the doctor is both a deceiver and a coward. So let me say this to you again this morning. The Christian message, the message of Jesus himself, comes to us with a bold and refreshing honesty. No matter how painful it may be for you and for I to hear this, for me to hear this at the very beginning. We need to know that we are sick. And then comes the obvious follow-up question. We need to know what that sickness is. We need to know what that sickness is and just how serious it is. What is the sickness that Jesus is talking about in this passage? Well, he says here, this is our verse, at the end of verse 17, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. A doctor heals sick people. This Savior calls sinners. The sickness is sin. And here's the question. Who is a sinner? Who are the sinners? Which people are sinners then? Let's assume no knowledge at all, except what we find in this passage. Let's take this passage at face value, as if you're coming fresh to Mark's gospel for the first time. And what do you notice here? Well, we can see that Jesus is calling sinners. It's there in 15, verse 15. Tax collectors and sinners are there with Jesus and his disciples. And then verse 16. Uh, these scribes and Pharisees see that Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors. And obviously a question comes to mind. Okay, sinners and tax collectors. Uh, Who are they exactly? What have they got to do with each other? Now, try and understand this. Sinners and tax collectors are not two separate groups of people. So you might say, right, sinners stand on my left and tax collectors stand on my right and they are two exclusive groups. It's not true at all. It's a kind of collective term for them all because... Many sinners happened to be tax collectors in that particular culture. Now, let me explain why that would be true. In Israel at the time, tax collectors were regarded with some justification as notorious swindlers, crooks, frauds, thieves, 
and traitors. They worked for the hated Roman occupying force. They had the worst imaginable reputation. They were viewed as the very lowest of the low in that society. They belonged to the very gutter of society. They were numbered with gluttons and drunkards. To say you're a tax collector would be a terrible, terrible insult. What a terrible thing to be in that day, to be a tax collector. There we are. So the tax collectors, they were sinners. They were regarded as notorious sinners. But what about the scribes of the Pharisees? Or again, scribes and Pharisees. Again, they are kind of intermixed with each other. They're the ones who are complaining that Jesus is eating with sinners and tax collectors. And if we take the logic of Jesus' words at face value, what do we pick up from verse 17? He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Very well then. You scribes and Pharisees, you religious people, you regard yourselves as being righteous. You see yourself as being different to the sinners. You don't think you're sinners. You say you're righteous. Okay, then I'll go with you. If you say you're righteous, I'll call you righteous for a moment and say, there you are. You don't need to have anyone to come and help you and minister to you and cure you. You seem to be all right. You're righteous. You're well. You're healthy. You don't need a doctor. But these sinners and tax collectors, look at them. They do. This is the point. If you think you are righteous, if you think you are right, if you think you are moral, if you think you are a good person, you will have no need of Jesus. Just like a patient who thinks that she is healthy has no need to go and see a doctor. So let me ask you the next question. Do you think that you are righteous? Do you think that you are righteous? Let's bring this account bang up to date if we can. Who are today's sinners and tax collectors? Who are today's lowest of the low? Who are those people whom we would hate to be one of that crowd? I can give some examples, which I think are non-controversial, and others which are very controversial, which I will totally avoid this morning. But I think we can say this. Violent criminals... Murderers, rapists, terrorists, drug dealers. These are categories of people who are guilty of notorious wrongdoing. You might say this, they are obvious and unmistakable sinners. And you would say, and I would say with you, probably... Hopefully, I've never done anything like what they've done. I'm not a sinner like those people. And you would be right as far as it goes. You've not committed those sins 
and those crimes. But this is where the word of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus really comes in and makes a difference, you see. In all his teaching, Jesus shows us that sin is a far greater, higher, wider, and especially deeper issue than these obvious and notorious sins. What does Jesus show? He shows us that sin is above all a matter of the heart, of the inner being, of the desires, of the motives, of the inclinations, of what we're like inside that nobody else can see. And this is the problem with these Pharisees, you understand. They saw sin, mainly if not wholly, as something that was outward. How things looked on the outside. If you were to say to a Pharisee, tell us what sin is then. Tell us the sins that you try to avoid. The Pharisee might say, well, I, I don't eat certain food. And I wash my hands in a particular way before every meal. And I give certain proportions of my herbs and spices to the temple authorities. And I, I pay the temple tax. I donate the right quantity of all that I have. I, I wear the right clothes. I, I wear this uh, little box on my head with a, with a verse inside. And uh, I, I am and I do and I look and I eat and I present myself in such a way that I don't sin. I'm pure. That's really what the word Pharisees meant, a separated, pure kind of person. And the Pharisee would say this, well, if I eat the wrong food, if I happen to eat a bit of pork meat by mistake, I have sinned grievously. And that has defiled me and polluted me and made me sinful. I've contracted sin. If I were to touch a corpse or touch a leper or, or something like that, I would, I would be defiled. I would become sinful. But if I keep all the rules... And you know, we can be Pharisees today. If I don't touch this, if I never touch alcohol, if I never touch tobacco, if I don't watch certain TV programs, if I don't go to certain places, if, if I dress in the right clothes, I am, I am preserving myself from any sin entering into me. I am preserving my cleanness. You see, the word of God is always contemporary and up-to-date. And there can be Pharisees today who say, you know, I don't let anything unclean enter into my body or into my home or into, into my life, and therefore I'm clean. I'm righteous. I'm not sinful. I go to church. You remember Vernon preaching a few weeks ago on the the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. I, I tithe what I have. I come to the temple. I do all this. I'm clean. Well, along comes Jesus, you see. And he turns everything upside down. Or we should actually say this. He turns everything inside out. Quite literally, he talks about the inside, not the outside. 
Can you imagine that you're, 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 you're wearing your clothes, you're wearing your shirt, and you've got a shirt that is beautifully clean on the outside, and it doesn't show any, any sweat marks or anything like that. Uh, how different it might look if I were to turn my... What a horrible thought. If I were to turn my shirt inside out. I'm not, never going to do that, by the way, but that would be a horrible thing to do, wouldn't it? But Jesus comes, and he turns everything inside out. And we hear him later on in Mark's Gospel saying in chapter 7 exactly these things. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And he goes on and he says this later on in chapter 7, verse 21, I think it is. What comes out of a person, what comes out of a person, is what defiles him. What does that mean? What pollutes him? What makes him disgusting and guilty and sinful? For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness. That's a catalogue, isn't it? All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. It doesn't matter what you eat or drink. It doesn't matter. That can't defile you, says Jesus. No, it's what's inside you. And you know what? The Pharisees who heard these words, if they were there at the time, would have agreed with Jesus up to a point. They would have said, well said, Rabbi, about the following, I think. Some of these sins. They would have said, absolutely, dreadful, vile, wicked sins. I mean, sexual immorality, theft, murder. Adultery, sensuality, these are the kinds of things that these notorious sinners and tax collectors get up to. Ugh. We, 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 we see them doing it. We know they do it. It's public. It's obvious. Horrible. Vile sins. Glad I don't do any of those. But they're not the only ones that Jesus lists, are they? There's others that the Pharisees might think twice about. Coveting. Really wanting to have something you can't have that somebody else has. Deceit. Telling lies. Leading astray. Telling a little white lie. Not only that, but defaming people, um, undermining people, Talking about people, it carries on. Envy, slander, gossip, character assassination, bringing somebody down, and pride, pride, self-centered, arrogant pride. And these are not disgusting sins. These are not filthy sins. These are not outward sins. These are not visible sins. These are not external sins. 
What are they? They're what the late Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. They're hidden from people's eyes. Do you know, we can take part in a bit of envy and pride and slander, can't we, with our friends? If they happen to agree with us, we can, we can gossip about somebody and we can talk about how angry they make us feel and we can really enjoy uh, having a go at somebody while they're not there. And it doesn't matter, does it? Because, you know, they agree with us and there's no harm done. They're never going to find out the person we're talking about and it's, it's just me and my friend and we're having a lovely time, having a nice gossip about somebody and we, we don't mind doing that, do we? But this is the problem. Although human eyes may only see the outward appearance, and we are all experts at pulling the wool over other people's eyes, aren't we? And we all do that. We all want to deceive and flatter to deceive. and We want people to think highly of us, don't we? We want people to have a much better view of ourselves than we really are like inside, don't we? Don't we? All of us? But God looks at the heart. He sees what's inside. He's not only concerned about what we do with our hands and our feet and our, and our eyes and our ears. He is concerned about those things. He is concerned about those things. But he's more concerned about what goes on in our hearts. The hidden inner desires and motivations of our fundamental personalities. All of this is naked and exposed before the eyes of him with whom we have to do, says the author to the Hebrews. He sees your pride. He sees my hypocrisy. He sees our scheming. He sees the anger inside us that may not necessarily be vented in angry words or actions that harm somebody else, but the anger is there, all right. And it eats us up inside, and it puts up a barrier between ourselves and God. And he sees the lust and the greed and the impurity that's inside our imaginations for what they are, and he calls them adultery just as he calls our anger murder. Because our God is not a God of some world religion where you go along to some holy building and you sprinkle yourself with water or say your prayers or go to a temple and offer a sacrifice or undergo some therapy or wash your hands or wash your bodies and God says, oh, it's all right now. You're okay. Our God is not like that. You remember David after the, the, uh, the affair and the whole matter of Bathsheba and Uriah and how, how wretched David feels. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, wash me, Lord. Make me clean. You've ever seen a dirty carpet? And some carpets have superficial stains little bit of juice gets spilt onto the carpet and you scrub it off and it's, it's gone in a few seconds. Some carpets have 
uh, slightly deeper stains. You need to put the old vanish down, don't you? Somebody brings a bit of mud and it starts to stain the carpet. You have to get the vanish and you scrub it and it uh, takes a while for it to go, doesn't it? But then there are some carpets, aren't there, that are absolutely, absolutely stained through and through. You need to get the, the heavy-duty industrial strength deep clean to sort them out. And what Jesus is saying to you and me is, listen, friends, your problem is no superficial matter that can be very easily solved with some magic silver bullet. No. Here's the question. How serious is your sickness? Your sickness of sin is a sickness of the soul and of the heart of the whole person that penetrates right to the center. It's not a superficial wound on your skin that can be treated with a little bit of sticky plaster. It's not a throbbing headache or earache or anything else that can be treated with a couple of painkillers and will be gone in, in, in 20 minutes or so. It's not a diseased organ that you can locate in your body like a liver or a lung or a kidney that you can maybe have successfully transplanted and then after that you're going to be fine. Your sin is not a mental illness that can be treated with a cocktail of medication and uh, behavioral therapy and things of that kind that will not work on your sin. Why not? Because I say to you again, you need to hear, and I need to hear afresh this morning, the extent of the bad news. What is your sickness and mine? It's nothing other than the deepest disorder of the whole human person. That's why we read that prayer and prayed that prayer earlier on and take it away and look at it in the time you have. But what is this sickness called sin? It is a radical, deep-seated rebellion against the God who made us, which results in this. Although we know the right way to live and act and speak and think, Although we know the right way to do all these things, we choose the wrong way. And we are therefore guilty and condemned. This is sin. I will make this point so important to make today especially. When I say sin is a sickness, don't misunderstand me. When you see a person who is medically sick, you don't blame that person ordinarily, do you? You might say, well, they've done things that have resulted in their sickness. They've abused their bodies. But if somebody is, is sick, then that sickness is not usually their fault, is it? They're ill, and they need to be treated, and they need a doctor, and they need to go to hospital, and they're sick. But sin, says the Bible... It's not something where we can say, but it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It is our fault. I think we can lose this. We just say, I've just got a problem called sin. It's a bit like a, it's a disability I have. It's, it's, it's a problem I have. It's a, it's a burden I carry. It's an inconvenience to me. And 
It means I, I don't get on very well in life. I have this problem called sin. Sin is affecting deeply your whole person and mine. We need to know what our sickness is. We need to know the extent and the seriousness of our sickness. And then, finally, friends, we're ready to move on to my final point. We need to go to the right doctor, don't we? I quote a recent media story from California, reported a few months ago in ABC News. When Jason and Tara Borovka took their adorable two-month-old son named JT for a checkup, the pediatrician said he looked a little pale. The doctor ran a blood test, and it showed that JT had lower levels of iron and hemoglobin than a typical baby at his age. JT was then diagnosed, if I pronounce this correctly, with triosphosphate isomerase deficiency, or TPI. It's a rare inherited gene mutation that causes the deficiency of triosphosphate, an enzyme, and leads to the anemia. Doctors only gave him, or give him, two to five more years to live if untreated. The symptoms include muscle loss, muscle wasting, and irreversible brain damage. Jason Borofka said, the panic of searching and looking for help was driving them to the edge. In the beginning, it definitely felt like our world was crumbling, Tara Borofka said. There was no hope. There is believed to be, I quote, only one doctor who studies TPI. There is believed to be only one doctor who studies TPI. The Borofkas, with the help of Stanford Children's Health, found him. Dr. Michael Palladino studies metabolic diseases, including TPI deficiency. And this is where the hope comes in. Now this morning, you and I may well be gripped and moved by a story like that. I'm even be thinking and praying now, may this little boy find the help he needs. May this doctor be able to give him the help that leads to a full recovery from this rare genetic disorder. We don't know that, do we? He was the only doctor who could offer a cure for this condition called TPI. But understand this this morning. There is only one doctor who can offer you a cure for this condition of sin that infects you and me through and through. His name is Jesus. Let me remind you again, what does this condition of sin mean for you and for me? It means that we are polluted and guilty by nature. It means that we rebel against God in thought and word and deed. It means that from that guilty, polluted nature come actual, 
committed sins, some visible to other people, but others, though not visible to other people, certainly visible to the all-seeing eyes of an all-knowing, holy, and righteous God. And that sin results in judgment and condemnation by God and everlasting punishment, and justly and justly so. This is the bad news of the sickness that we all need to hear and understand. But I close with the good news. The one doctor to whom we are directed again today is not only the doctor, he is the cure. The whole Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who is eternal, infinite, almighty God, equal, co-equal, co-eternal, of one substance with the Father, the one worthy of praise and adoration and worship and obedience as God the Father is, the equal one with him, is the one who comes down into this world of sin. And he becomes human. He has hands and fingers and skin and bones and blood and flesh and nerves and muscles and a digestive system and all of these things that you and I have in our amazing, wonderfully, fearfully made bodies. The Son of God takes your, my common humanity and he takes it on our behalf, on your behalf, to a place called Calvary, to there become a sacrifice and a substitute for sin, because he is the only cure and the only doctor for your and my deepest hell-deserving problem, which is sin that separates us from God. You may know the words of this chorus of this hymn. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He's the only doctor and the only cure for you and for me to be directed to. Nothing else, nothing I do or say, nothing I feel, no new determination or resolve to start again, no decision to try and be better, no weird exotic experience in this life, no ceremony, no therapy, no course of learning can wash away my sin or make me whole again. Only Jesus Christ can do this. And my one aim this morning as a preacher of Jesus Christ and him crucified is simply this. Go to him. I turn you to him. I say, turn your eyes and fix your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face today. Because nothing and no one can cure you of your sin. 
And you know what? I, I just close with this. You may say to me this morning, oh, Paul, I've heard all this before. Why are you preaching this gospel sermon? We need something a, a bit different to that. We need something more, more interesting than that, more advanced than that. This is so basic. Well, I don't think it's that basic, actually. But let me say this. Underlying so much, if not all, of our human problems and difficulties that we find in life is that there is still inside us this attitude of, of sin, sinful thinking, sinful habits, sinful attitudes that need to be repented of. And may the same Lord Jesus who forgives our sin when we first believe come to us again today and work in all of us to bring us to see again that he and only he can cleanse us from our sin. Let's come together in prayer. Our loving Savior, Jesus Christ, day may follow day and year follow year, and the same gospel goes out, the same Savior, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Gracious Lord God, come to us. If any soul here is far from you, a stranger to Jesus Christ, has resisted knowing him all their lives, we pray, Lord God, that your spirit would break through into that heart and soften such a heart and make this soul realize that only Jesus Christ can come and make us whole again. Lord, we come to you now. Come and do your work. Come to us, we pray. For we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.